And the banjos mean it is another episode of the Antietam and Beyond podcast. I'm Tom McMillan with my co-host John Banks. Hey, John. Tom, what's happening? Today, as you know, as the listeners don't know, but as you know, we're going to take a little road trip. We're going to leave Sharpsburg. We're going to go past Lee's headquarters, past General Robert E. Lee Drive, past the Antietam Railroad Station, past the Ferry Hill Mansion, across Butler's Ford, to Shepherdstown, West Virginia, and our topic will be the Battle of Shepherdstown with author Tom McGrath. A really interesting episode coming up for you. But first, as we always do, we have a little, little sideshow here at the beginning. And John, you have an incredible story that you picked up in the last few weeks. Tom, you may not know this, but I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit strange. And and I was noodling around newspapers.com the other day, searching Antietam and bullets. And a couple of years ago, I wrote a story for either Civil War Times or America's Civil War magazine regarding soldiers who, for decades after the war, had lead in their bodies. And I found it, I found another one of these bizarre stories that I wanted to tell. It comes underneath the headline of Veteran Sheds Bullets, Leaden Pellets Carried in Head Since Battle of Antietam Drop Out. So there's this veteran, Francis F. Rogers, lives in Wilkesboro, PA, He's in his early 90s. He's a boarder at some place with, with other folks. And he sits down to eat dinner one night. And uh, lo and behold, Tom, well, I'll read it. It says, while at the siege of Antietam, which is obviously inaccurate, uh, the soldier, the veteran, Francis E. Rogers, received four bullets in his head. Recently, he was at the dinner table and was talking with the other boarders when a bullet dropped from his head upon the table. He felt his head and found the hole from which the bullet came. A few days later, he was talking with a friend when another bullet dropped from his head and fell upon the floor. While he was sleeping, another bullet worked itself loose. And when he awoke in the morning, he found it on the pillow. And eventually a fourth bullet and these may have been shotgun pellets, may not have been a bullet. It, the newspaper could have uh, exaggerated slightly, but I, I still found that story somewhat amusing, perhaps not for soldier, veteran soldier Francis F. Rogers, but I got a kick out of that story, Tom. So Only in the Civil War. You can't make this stuff up. That's, that's great. John sent, sent that to me a few days ago. I said, we have to do that in the podcast. It has nothing to do with our podcast, really. But uh, those kind of stories just uh, make you shake your head. So we are, as you know, this, uh, this podcast focuses on the Battle of Antietam. But the title is Antietam and Beyond because we do the entire Maryland campaign and other related aspects. And one of the really interesting things to John and I was the was the Battle of Shepherdstown, which took place a few days after the Battle of Antietam. And our guest tonight is, is a man who's written a book on that battle. Tom McGrath is the author of Shepherdstown, Last Clash of the Antietam Campaign, September 19th and 20th, 1862. Tom, welcome. And, and first of all, since you know a lot of folks who study this battle focus just on the battle, can you bring out the uh, Battle of Antietam? Just give us, give us kind of an overview of what happened at Shepherdstown after the Battle of Antietam. Sure, absolutely. And thank you for having me on. Uh, this is really exciting to be able to talk about uh, <laughs> one of my obsessions here, the Battle of <laughs> Shepherdstown. Well, to, to give you sort of the nutshell, Cliff Notes version, of course, we know the Battle of Antietam was on September 17th, 
Uh, the following day, the two armies sort of just held their places in line. But on the night of the 18th, Lee had to make a withdrawal. Um, and he had to go across the Potomac River into what was then Virginia, which is now West Virginia. Uh, and this story in itself um, is just incredible. The logistics of this move, I won't go too much into a tangent here, uh, but moving 30,000 odd men, all of their animals, their munitions, their wagons in a pitch black night in the rain, um, you know, the mud, just wheels turning and men slipping uh, to add to the difficulty, the bridge that crossed the Potomac into Shepherdstown had been burned. So all of this traffic is going to be diverted about a mile down river to a, a crossing, a ford. Um, it's, it has a number of names, uh, Boatler's Ford, Blackford's Ford, Shepherdstown, Packhorse Ford. Um, but Lee was able to move all of his men and equipment over that river in a single pitch black night. Um, you know, that's one of the things I think we, we take for granted nowadays. We had a, a power outage here uh, last week. And I said, man, it is dark without electricity. Uh, so imagine trying to do all of this and coordinate um, all of this movement. The next morning, uh, the sun comes out and the Union soldiers start to move forward and probe the lines from the day before and the Confederates were gone. So the Federal Army starts to move cavalry first uh, in the direction of Shepherdstown and they, they catch the tail end of the Confederates retreating across the ford. And this is when uh, the Union bring up uh, some artillery, start to shell this tail end and Confederates began to fire in response. So this is the morning of September 19th. So this is really the beginning of the two-day Battle of Shepherdstown. Uh, the 19th is basically uh, Union forces continue to build on the Maryland side of the Potomac. And there is increased artillery fire, not only from uh, directly across from the Ford, but a mile up where, where that bridge I talked about was burned out. Uh, that's an artillery position as well. So there is just a tremendous uh, artillery battle uh, throughout the day. And it gets to be a little dicey for the Confederates toward the end. Um, who's defending the Ford? It is General William Nelson Pendleton. And people that know that name are already shaking their heads. Uh, not respected by his fellow officers, not liked by his men, not competent. Uh, he seems like a really nice guy but he was in way over his head. And one of the mistakes that he makes is um, he doesn't really have a good sense of how much infantry he has at that crossing. If you see, if you see the Ford today, it's, it's very defensible. Uh, I mean, the Potomac itself is like a moat. Um, maybe a quick description of what it looks like. Now we're looking from the Maryland side of the river across, um, across the Ford, and on the opposite side, the Virginia side, it is steep uh, bluffs. Some of it, 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 most of it's impossible to get up. There's, there's basically one road uh, today called Trough Road, which splits the center. And that's going to be one of the um, roads the Confederates use uh, to make their retreat. The other one is River Road, which runs right along the banks uh, of the river into Shepherdstown. But Lee's... Uh, Artillerymen do a, a really good job at placing artillery. Uh, you know, he has his long range placed along uh, places uh, to the left and right of this line. And in the center, directly overlooking the Ford, he's got um, guns trained to prevent a crossing. The problem is uh, James Longstreet had left him with two brigades 
of artillery, excuse me, of infantry to defend uh, the crossing. Now, when we say brigades, we usually think brigades. Uh, these two brigades combined were about 600 men. So here's Pendleton not really, you know, knowing what size force he has to defend. Uh, and as a result, toward late afternoon, uh, early evening, actually we'll call this dusk, um, the Federals see an opportunity and they're going to send two units in a mad dash across uh, the Potomac River, the first United States sharpshooters and the fourth Michigan who were chosen to make this attack. Uh, there is a bit of resistance, but by the time the Union soldiers get across, uh, the Confederates have picked up and begin to, you know, skedaddle as they would say in the day. Uh, they were also running low on ammunition, the Confederates were. Um, I mentioned that artillery position from Douglas Hill up there where the burnt bridge was. Um, there's artillery firing from there. Uh, so they're basically uh, in flood fire coming in from the side. It was a horrible position. If you read some of the accounts of the Confederate gunners, uh, the ones that were able to stick um, to their pieces, uh, just tremendous bravery. Um, uh, but it wasn't enough. And Confederates retreat. And the Union soldiers that crossed, and it was only two, two units, 4th Michigan and 1st United States sharpshooters, uh, they managed to capture four cannon total. So this is where we start to see uh, the murky waters of the Battle of Shepherdstown. This is um, a battle which really had no strategic or tactical objective, on the Union side that is, and it is also um, a result of many miscommunications and confusion, as you might imagine. William Nelson Pendleton begins uh, to look for Robert E. Lee. Now, when we think about finding the commander of the army, you know, sure, he's in his tent with his headquarters flag waving and, you know, pickets around and, you know, where is Lee? He's right over there. This night, I think we need to think about how uh, confused it was. Um, men are scattered absolutely everywhere. They had just gone through the most devastating event of their lives, the Battle of Antietam. Um, you know, they're taking their wounded with them. These men are in terrible condition. I think Lee himself was utterly exhausted by this point. Pendleton would look for Lee for hours, and he will finally find him about midnight. And he will report to General Lee that he has lost all of his artillery. This is what sets off um, things in motion for Lee's next move. Um, he had not lost all of his artillery. That would have been 44 guns. Uh, he had lost four guns. But thinking that the, the Union uh, Federals had crossed the river, captured all of the artillery, and the next thing he knows, you know, they could be attacking, uh, you know, further into Virginia. It's a little unclear of who sends the orders for men to go back to the Ford. But at one point, Stonewall Jackson gets word of this. Uh, and he, knowing Stonewall Jackson, uh, he is not happy. And he is going to begin ordering men back the direction of uh of the Ford immediately. So that's what kind of sets up the events for the 20th. Morning of the 20th, we still see a federal presence along the Maryland side of the Potomac. Um, but they, those two units that had crossed, um, spent a little bit of time that evening, but then returned. What is in store for the 20th? We um, 
need to think of this as you put ourselves back in that position. Where did Lee go? Uh, we know he retreated into Virginia. So there will be a reconnaissance, basically reconnaissance in force sent across the river. That is the only mission of the Union soldiers that morning. The first Union soldiers to cross are going to be um, about a thousand men in uh, the regular brigade. They're, they're regular soldiers, um, several battalions under Charles Lovell. Uh, he begins to cross and he will make his way south on Trough Road, which I mentioned earlier. Um, the problem here, again, more confusion. The cavalry was supposed to lead the way. I mean, that's the way, usually the way it's done. You know, the eyes and ears of the army, the cavalry. You have a regular brigade marching alone in enemy country. They march about a mile inland. And if you if you go to the battlefield today, and I hope you do, Trough Road, uh, it, it cuts those bluffs. And, and on either side, right and left, as you're marching, um, you can't see on either side. John, we walked that coming up. Uh, oh, yeah. And it, 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 you're, you're literally blind. But when you get about a mile inland, uh, you come out on a plateau. And it's at this point where uh, Lovell's regulars uh, see movement in the woods about couple hundred yards ahead some someone's there uh so Lovell will fan his men out remember these are regular soldiers they know they're trained they know what to do um they form into battle line they send out some skirmishers and I always in my head I picture this you know if you were watching a movie of this you would see Charles Lovell putting his thousand men uh brigade into line and then you have like this aerial view where you see Lovell's men and who is he facing there's 3,000 men in the woods, AP Hills Division. These, this is, these are the men that, that saved the day at Sharpsburg. Uh, this, these are some of the best trained soldiers and, and hardest fighting uh, units in the Confederate Army. So this is where, you know, this is that spot where what's going to happen next. Um, some, of the, some of the regular men um, later on, they're like, boy, if we had just marched, you know, a little bit more, we would have been gobbled up. Uh, and that was a good way to describe it. Uh, they all would have been captured. But this is where um, events begin to heat up. If you go back to the Ford, I mentioned this was a reconnaissance in force. There was another brigade crossing the river at the Ford. Uh, this is uh, Colonel James Barnes. Uh, he's got a, a huge brigade, uh, about 1,700 men. They were supposed to cross the river, follow River Road, and go into Shepherdstown, into the town to see what was going on. However, when word comes back, that the Confederates were right in front of Lovell, uh, things will change in a hurry. Um, so this brigade is ordered to take a position up on the bluffs, basically to cover, cover Lovell's flank. Um, so again, going back to the terrain and the terrain of this battle, uh, I think it, it dictates the course of what happens here almost more than any other battle I can think of. Um, there are two ravines to get to the top of the bluff. So Barnes's brigade will use both ravines and they will get men to the top of the hill. Meanwhile, Lovell begins to withdraw. As Lovell's men withdraw, Barnes's men on the right uh, begin to take a position. There was, again, no tactical strategic objective here. This was just to protect Lovell's flank. What happens next is the artillery on the Maryland side opens up. Uh, and they do tremendous work, tremendous damage as to basically to protect Lovell's retreat. But as Lovell pulls uh, 
the back, the Confederates will step forward. Three brigades, and I won't get, I'm very tempted to get into the weeds here, but I'll, I'll try to keep it to the, the Cliff Notes version. Pender's Brigade will come face to face with uh, the men of Barnes's brigade who just got to the top of the hill. And a lot of, uh, one of the things that it, I've noticed about the Battle of Shepherdstown, um, we don't acknowledge all of the other men that fought there on both sides. You know, it's usually the 118th Pennsylvania, you know, they go to the top of the hill, their guns don't work and they get slaughtered. The 18th Massachusetts was the first unit to the top of the hill and they absorbed the brunt of Pender's first attack. Um, more troops are called over from the Maryland side. We have uh, Warren's Brigade of New Yorkers. Um, Joshua Chamberlain is going to cross next. Uh, so we have, uh, at one point, we have about 6,000 men engaged just on the Virginia side of the river. Tom, if uh, I may, I yes. want to know, all right, the Battle of Shepherdstown. Many of our listeners have not heard of the Battle of Shepherdstown. You obviously are extremely enthusiastic about the Battle of Shepherdstown. So here's my qu two questions. One, how did you get interested in this post-Antietam fight? And two, tell us a little bit about the number of casualties at, at the battle. So first, how did you get interested? Second, the casualties in the battle. Sure. Um, well, uh, let's see. I grew up in Boston. Um, and I, I spent all my summers up in Maine. And, you know, of course, we had the, the Ken Burns uh, series come out and we had Gettysburg on top of that. Um, I was going to University of Massachusetts at Amherst um, and I had a tremendous uh, professor there, Stephen Oates, um, who passed away a few years ago. Um, but really just all of that kind of lit a fire. And I wanted to do an article on Chamberlain because, of course, he won the Civil War. We all know that um absolutely <laughs> so uh I, I just wanted to see what it was like um their first time under fire what kind of story that was and as i stood there uh excuse me as i as i begin to get began to get into um the story of of shepherdstown it's, it was almost like this this curtain unfolding you know you see you know see you see one thing on the stage and it begins to open wider and wider and i remember standing on the on the Maryland side of the Potomac on a rock and looking around going, there was a lot that happened here. So I, I wanted to find out more about it. And Shepherdstown, it's one of those weird events in the Civil War that like disappears. Um, there was research done, but like I said, mainly it focuses on uh, the 118th Pennsylvania. If you look at uh, a lot of the books on Antietam, it, it gets like a paragraph. And I'm like, wow, there, there's, there's a story here. So well, once Tom, we get to that, Tom, go ahead. Jump into the, the thing I like about this, I've always liked about it, is that, you know, we all talk about, people always talk about the Battle of Antietam as the single bloodiest day in American history, which it was. But it almost dissuades you from thinking there, were, there was a campaign here. Yes, that was the one day battle, but it was, you know, there was fighting at South Mountain on the 14th. There was at least skirmishing at Sharpsburg on the 16th. And then this battle at Shepherdstown, it, it wasn't just a one day battle. And I think sometimes when people are just starting, especially when they're just reading about it, breezing over it, just starting to study it, they think that's what it is because we talk so much about the bloodiest single day. And this is kind of the aftermath. And, and you're right, it, most of these pieces, 
that, that you read, uh, Shepherdstown is is a paragraph, and uh, and it was much more important than that. How many casualties Tom McGrath at Shepherdstown? Um, I I count six hundred and seventy seven. Um, you've got uh, I think hundred and twenty two dead on on September twentieth, lying on those fields, and uh, you know many wounded and, and and many mortally wounded as well. But the, the other thing about this battle is uh, it was extremely quick and extremely violent. And I know we say battles, yeah, they're violent. Um, but this this happened, you know, Lovell's men probably crossed at eight, Barnes at nine. This battle was was over 11 noon at the latest. Um, there was picket firing the rest of the day. But for have, to have that many casualties in that short a time, and, and a lot of it was from uh, artillery fire. Um, yes. Yeah, it's, um, it's a very... Uh, when you look at the troop movements, it's like I said, the terrain dictates everything. So they were very limited in what they could do. You know, entry points, um, ways to get to retreat. It's very limited uh, what you could do. And in fact, um, many of the men, when they had to retreat across the Potomac, uh, were upriver from the fort. Um, there was an old cement mill at the base of the bluffs. And part of the cement mill operation was a dam, uh, and that dam still existed. The 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 cement mill, the the, the shell of the buildings uh, were still there, but uh, uh, they would been they'd been burned out earlier. Uh, many of the men crossed the bridge, were getting shot at. Uh, one man took five bullets in his body crossing the dam, and we're talking a couple football fields here across the way. So when you when you look at a lot of the human interest stories of this battle. Uh, there are some some really strange, strange events here. There's one I can think of when uh, Barnes's men had got to the top of, of the bluffs. The federal inf uh, federal artillery opened up on the advancing Confederates, and a lot of these uh, shells started falling short uh, and striking. Uh, for example, men of the 22nd Massachusetts, there were shells exploding over their head. Uh, there was a, a, a man, 44-year-old man, uh, in the 22nd Massachusetts, one of those artillery shells went off and blew the lower half of his face off. Um, and, you know, those are the stories. Um, John, I, I mentioned this, you know, when we when, when we uh, walk the field, when we talk about these battles and, you know, oftentimes the stereotypical injury, you know, the spirit of 76 with the man with the white bandage around his head or his arm in a sling and he goes home and, what do you do if your testicles get shot off or a, bu a bullet comes in one eye and goes out the other? What do you do next? You know what I mean? That That's the grit and reality of Civil War combat. Um, and this is a, this is a prime example of that. His his face was he lingered a few days before yes. he died. And, and here's the uh, Tom McMillan. I, I met Tom McGrath at a Shepherdstown Battlefield Preservation Association cleanup event that the. the Battlefield Preservation Association is a fantastic organization, but I met him at a cleanup event there. We were walking up, I was walking up Trough Road, picking up uh, old liquor bottles and cleaning up the <laughs> battlefield and all that type of stuff. The terrain at this battlefield is, is to me, it's fascinating. And what, what also is fascinating for the people who are not familiar with this battle is both times, as you go down River Road, those cement mill ruins are there. You can see those. And you can also see if you go down uh, on 
directionally challenged, but as you go down toward the river, toward the Potomac River, there are the kilns that, that are there that I believe it was the 118th Pennsylvania soldiers, Tom McGrath huddled down there and were vi victims of friendly fire, correct? That, yeah, and that was, again, the federal artillery. If you guys don't mind, um, I just want to read one description from an eyewitness, and it's it's funny you brought that up because I, I was going to mention it. So, yes, part of that um, cement mill operation, even if you're not interested in the Civil War, uh, that's a cool site just to visit for the early uh, industry. They were making um, cement, uh, which was transported downriver in the canal. Uh, and there's these kilns, uh, these, these archways. You know, they're probably, what, six, eight feet high, uh, maybe six, eight feet deep. And when the 118th Pennsylvania was driven off the bluff, uh, they were scrambling because the Confederates then occupied the bluffs above and were shooting down on them. So a number of men went into these uh, kilns for protection. The Federal artillery opens up again. Some of the shells again begin to fall short. Um, this is the description um, of a man named Frank Donaldson. That I highly recommend the book, Inside the Army of the Potomac. Uh, some of the most honest letters uh, you will ever read. And of course, Civil War, they weren't censored. So it's all in there. Frank Donaldson is standing by the river and he's, he's you know, trying to push his men along across the dam. And he looks back uh, and this is his description. He's about 40 yards away. I was just preparing to recross the river over the dam and was standing, part, standing partly in the water up to my knees. When noticing men crowding the archways were waving white handkerchiefs on the ends of ramrods in token of submission. I was about to order them out when a shell entered one of the arches, tearing to pieces 12 or 15 of the poor devils crowded therein. Uh, what, to me, what is so special about that, uh, that event is it's very rare in the Civil War where you could go to an actual spot where you know someone died. You know that you, you have an area, a lot of people, you know, say this in this area, so-and-so is mortally wounded, but you can go there today. You can look in there, and you know, three people lost their lives right in that very spot. Yeah, it's um, amazing. And, and very few people, like I've been there dozens of times and very few people go down there and, and check out the, you have to walk down a little path along the river. It is, it's really amazing. It's surreal to actually stand there, Tom McMillan. And we are all such nerds because we've all been there. My wife and I, John, have been, and I've been down there too. Just, it is a fascinating haunting site. I agree with Tom that even if you're not interested in the civil war, it's cool just to see what would have happened there. And if I'm correct, Tom, that was Alexander Butler or Butler's, however you pronounce it, uh, cement mill, correct? The, the local resident who was a, a, a member of the U.S. House of Representatives and later became part of the Confederate House. But that was, it, again, it was Pack Horse Ford and all sorts of Blackbirds Ford. But that's why it's most commonly known as Boatler's Ford or Butler's Ford. Yes, yes. And I was corrected. It is Boatler's Ford by, by Shepherdstown residents who uh, <laughs> corrected me. Um but yes, that was his operation. Um, even after the war, uh, I think it, it got up and running and, and functioned for a little bit. But it, it's a really, really interesting site. The, the big building that was there uh, was dismantled at one point, and it was used to build a garage in town, I think. So those stones were <laughs> repurposed. A garage in town? What? Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. Yep. Tom McMillan, I think we need to to mention our sponsor, don't we? We absolutely do, Civil War Trails. 
Oh, let me take this because this is the one of my favorite parts of, of every podcast. But Civil War Trail sponsors uh, our podcast. We are very appreciative. Uh, that's the world's largest open-air museum offering 1,500 sites, Tom, Tom and Tom, across six states, including over two dozen stops along their Antietam campaign driving trail. And you can request a free brochure to begin your planning of your trip at civilwartrails.org. And of course, Tom McMillan, when you see a Civil War trail sign, what are we supposed to do? Sign selfie, baby. Hashtag sign selfie on social media. We love the sign selfies. Tom McGrath, you mentioned the 118th Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. I love that regiment. I have a red, uh, original copy of the regimental history. One of my Civil War heroes was a member of that regiment. And why he doesn't have the Medal of Honor is beyond me. Tell us a little bit about Lemuel Crocker, an amazing man. Yes, and it's funny because he was one of my uh, favorites too, even before I met you. What are we, Civil War badass? Is that what we call him? The badass of the Civil War. <laughs> no doubt. Uh, Absolutely so, no doubt. Yeah, so let me uh, let me just paint the picture uh, briefly here on September 21st. So this is the day following um, the battle, the second day of the battle. Uh, there, was a, there was a fog over the river. Uh, Union pickets were alongside, uh, you know, the Maryland banks of the Potomac, actually in the canal, which had been drained. So it was a, it's like a rifle pit. But as the fog lifted, they could look across the river and they could see the dead of their regiment. And they were everywhere. They were dangling from trees. They were in those ravines I mentioned. They would, some had fallen off the cliffs to their deaths. They could also hear the wounded screaming. So Lemuel Crocker, uh, if you had to picture him, uh, he's a linebacker. Okay, put him on a football, forming back and forth. Uh, he just, he wants to cross that dam. He wants to help his men. Um, he gets, he gets refused. So he says, you know, I'm going myself. So he goes across the dam. He goes up the ravine that they had um, traversed before, and he starts to throw um, some of his uh, comrades over his shoulder and pull him down to the riverbank. Bodies. Uh, there was one wounded man that he brought down. He gets an order from the Corps commander. You better come back over here. We're going to we're going to shell you. <laughs> and he says, shell and be damned. So he goes back up and he continues his mission uh, somewhere along. There was there was a few Confederate pickets. Um, he, he talks about an officer coming, uh, meeting him. And he says, what are you doing here? And he says, I'm helping my men. He goes, are you here by yourself? He says, yep. He goes, how long have you been in the army? He goes, 20 days. The Confederate goes, I thought so. So he gave he gave him some assistance. He, he recommended what, uh, sorry, he, he recognized what uh, Crocker was doing um, was selfless and heroic. Uh, and he actually, they, I think they gave him a boat to get some of the, the bodies across of the officers and wounded. Um, later, there was a, a more formal um, detail that went across and, and gathered up the wounded and the dead. Um, but but to have the guts, you know, that's that's the kind of guy that you want on your side and, you know, in your regiment. But yeah, a great, great story. And every time I go up, uh, I've been up on the bluff by myself and the coyotes and the, and the bears and the foxes or whatever else is up there. 
yeah. desperately trying to commune with the spirit of Lemuel Crocker. Someday, oh, yeah. someday, I someday, will, we'll be we'll be chatting somewhere. I don't know Absolutely. where it's going to be, but he is my hero. My he's, my hero. He's phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, as we look at this battle, and in the same regiment, we have we have cowards. Uh, there's a young man that sent out. Um, his name is Levi Passmore, and he is sent out on the picket line when they first get to the top of the bluff. They see Pender's pickets and they see Pender's line, and he just runs away. And goes back and runs across to the across the dam to the other side. So we we have uh, you know examples uh, from one extreme to the other, uh, but that's part of the human story. You know these guys weren't robots. They weren't all heroic. They weren't all cowards. You got a combination. Um, but when you see how people react in in sort of crisis situations like this, um, you, you really have to respect the people that 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 stand up and do their job. Now, Tom McGrath, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you one more question here because I'm real excited about the Battle of Shepherdstown. What it, what is saved? What is preserved? What can what can people see there? Because some of the ground up there on the bluff is private property, and you shouldn't trespass. So, what has been saved recently? What do we need to know? Well, this is this is the second Battle of Shepherdstown, and this was um, it, it, it's so strange how this coincided um, with the book coming out. I had made a phone call while I was doing research to a man named Jim Price, who was the historian in Shepherdstown. And I, I, you know, I asked him about the battle. And the first thing he said was, oh, yeah, it's for sale. And I went, what? He goes, I think it's for sale. Sure enough, when next time it was down there, there was, there was a for sale sign on basically the core property, about 120 acres or so. And what year was this, Tom, that you're talking oh, about? Oh, this this had to be um, ba, 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 probably 2004 or five. If it didn't happen 150 years ago, my memory isn't as sharp as. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so what happens next is um, there was a developer that wanted to put um, like 150 homes on this, which would have completely destroyed the battlefield, not not to mention to ruin the rural um, uh, sort of atmosphere. And all of the the neighbors got together and they formed the Shepherdstown Battlefield Preservation Association. Uh, they, if you want to get in touch with them, um, just do a Google for that. And uh, they have done tremendous work. Uh, they have uh, managed to save not only that the farm that the de developer wanted to uh, put houses on, uh, but there's easements on several of their own properties. Um, there's been, uh, you know, help with the Battlefield Trust, um, Jefferson County, state of West Virginia. And if you look at what's preserved now, I would say 60 to 75%. It's, the fight is not over. Um, I, can I tell a quick story here about uh, an encounter I had? Um, one of the things um, that I had to, deal with and it was it was very odd because i didn't expect any of this in 2009 a uh the national park service put together a special resource study and they had me come on as chief historian and i had to do a resource study basically what happened there um, how much of it still exists how much has been altered are there any cultural resources that are valuable and i had to do uh, a question and answer with the local people there uh and all the people I've met down there, absolutely phenomenal. Um, they're very welcoming and uh, just just super people. Um, but there were some people in the audience that were very suspicious. 
Now we I mentioned earlier, like the battle was forgotten. It, it literally was forgotten. Uh, and I had one woman uh, raise her hand and say, well, I find it a little suspicious that your book comes out right when they're just trying to save this battlefield. And I go, well, I wrote an article in 1998 for Blue and Gray that said I was working on a book <laughs> on the Battle of Shepherdstown. So that's not at all what it was. And, and, and uh, one person said, I just find it odd that that this is coming up now. Why is why has no one talked about this battle before? And I said, that's exactly what I've been asking. <laughs> you know, why haven't been people talking? So uh, it, it's been a, it was a contentious struggle. And I won't go into the details. If you go to the um, SBPA website, Shepherdstown Battlefield Preservation Association, uh, that'll give you the rundown and you can see um, what's been preserved and what is it. There is, um, there was a recent setback. Um, There's a big gouge uh, out of the hill on the east side of Trough Road. They are putting uh, several houses there. Uh, so um, this is one that has been lost. They're still um, looking for help to save um, what remains. Um, so like I said, reach out to them. And uh, if you're interested at all, uh, get down and, and uh, visit the battlefield. And, uh, and, and you'll really appreciate what a special place this is. And Tom, it's, it's, congrats on that. Such important work. And we all have that in our hearts. I'm on the board of the Antietam Institute. John's on the board of the Safe Historic Antietam Foundation. So it's important to do is do this in, in safe history, as John often says on his social media, uh, keep history alive. One little side question. You mentioned your professor at UMass, Stephen Oates. Is that yes. Stephen Oates who uh, who wrote the biography on Lincoln and John Brown? And, With malice you know, toward one, yes. Yeah, yes. Fame, fame. I was wondering if that was... That was the same color. The one thing too, when I, and we're we're wrapping up here soon, but when when I go to Shepherdstown, I try to study this battle, and and obviously I've learned so much from you tonight, and just just enjoy that town. But I look at the Potomac River, and it, it really is such a, an important waterway in the Civil War. And once it was was down there, in the famed uh, Harper's Ferry historian Dennis Fry points out, you know, during the Civil War, that was an international border. The Potomac River with international waters. Yeah. Every time yeah. my wife and I drive across that bridge nowadays, we're crossing international waters. We're crossing the international border, and it's it's hard to think of it, but that's what it was. Those guys were going from what was then for those four years one country into the next. It's just, it's just kind of phenomenal what happened there. Not just the Battle of Shepherdstown. There was lots of crossings for you know AP Hill went up there to to the Battle of Antietam. They crossed it during the Battle of Gettysburg. It really was a lot that happened in that little area. Oh, absolutely. Yes. And it, it, another interesting note about this battle is it's fought in two states at the same time. Because the Union side were firing from Maryland and, the you know, the artillery, I'm sorry, the infantry was on the other side. So, yeah, it's 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 a very unique battle in, in so many ways. And the more you study it, uh, the more fascinating it becomes. And uh, one of the things, um, John, when we walked it, uh, it's just such a beautiful place. Uh, and it, this may sound kind of strange, but to walk a battlefield that doesn't have monuments kind of puts you, you know, in the place, in the way that the soldiers saw it. You know, they, it's just all natural all around there. Um, but well, yeah, it, I was in, uh, very, I'm sorry to interrupt. I was in awe, Tom McMillan. Uh, the, the day that Tom and I met, we were with a large group. And then I went up to Tom afterward and said, Hey, can you, I'm a nooks and crannies guy. I'd like to see some other parts of the battlefield and Tom graciously let's do it. And to walk that field 
and to see that place and, and how beautiful it is today. I mean, it's, it's awe inspiring. And then to know what happened there and to be with somebody like Tom, who, 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 who's like pointing out, you know, this is where the, the Confederates rose out of this ridge and, you know, the 118th Pennsylvania came up this ravine. I, it, it was a truly special experience. Yeah. It's, 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 uh, like I said, it's, we're so lucky to, um, have saved so much land. I say we, you know, collectively, uh, if we, if, if that farm had been developed, I liken it to having the angle without the field of pickets charge. So you, or, or Fredericksburg maybe where you have, you know, the, the wall, but there's houses there. Um, so we, we, and the original farmhouse is still there. The Osborne farmhouse, uh, which has been used for functions and things like that. And, and like the special events that we did, there's a cannonball on the side of it. I was going to say, yeah, you gotta, yeah. you gotta love a house with a cannonball in it. That's all. Yeah. And, and Tom, that weekend that you guys are talking about, that's also the weekend that John Banks and I first met in person. We're up in, in a place in Boosboro, just north of the Battle of Antietam. And he was telling me about these stories. So <laughs> it, it's great to, to meet you in this way. When, when you were back, I know you're from up in New York State. When you were back in the area, John and I will both take you to dinner at our favorite restaurant in Shepherdstown, the unofficial official restaurant of this podcast, a press room on, on, on German Street. So we will we will offer that for you when we can continue this chat. And I look forward to walking the battlefield uh, with you as well. We that's, may also that's... want to take him over to the sweet shop and get him Absolutely. A, a fresh cup of coffee and, and two cookies for like three dollars <laughs> or something like that. We of, love Shepherdstown we love... is the greatest, the greatest yeah. place. Yeah, it's it's a great town, great people. Um and in the battlefield, like I said, it's uh, it's really special. The book, again, highly recommended, Shepherdstown, Last Clash of the Antietam Campaign, September 19th and 20th, 1862. The author is Tom McGrath. He's been our guest. Tom, it's, it really has been fascinating. But, John, I do think, so thank you so much. I do think I hear those banjos, John. There's a faint sound in the distance. Maybe even Tom McGrath can hear the banjos. Tom McGrath, do you hear the banjos? Oh, yeah. I hear them. Take it away. Banjos. <laughs>